Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for April 25th, 2022. Here's today's rundown. The Office of Inspector General for the Department of Health and Human Services has initiated a nationwide audit of hospice claims. UPix and Max have joined the hunt. Reporting our lead story is William Downby, President and CEO for the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. CMS has released the 2023 Inpatient Prospective Payment Proposed Rule. Details are available at RAC Monitor. More news on healthcare rules and regulations comes today from Polana Houston. Assistant General Counsel at Cellus, filling in for Matthew Albright with our legislative update. We'll also hear from Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Healthcare Attorney David Glazer, Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel, and Tiffany Ferguson with news on the social determinants of health. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Monitor Monday. We have a great deal of news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Well, I'm sure you've heard that the IPPS inpatient prospective payment rule for 2023 is out. I have not read the whole 1,786 proposed pages, but I can tell you this, it's terribly boring. But, but who doesn't like boring? Sure, there's the usual payment proposals and some code changes, but the two midnight rule remains intact. Now there is one big thing that I found. CMS is requesting comments on getting better data on the social determinants of health. And I'm sure Tiffany will have much more to say about this in her segment. But let me say this, I told you so, just over four years ago, on April 23rd, 2018, I reported on Monitor Monday that the time has come to start using these ICD-10 codes on claims. To quote myself, now I doubt all 88 codes will be used for risk adjustment, but we won't know which will be used, so we should document and code all applicable conditions. And the more a code is used, the more the researchers will realize that it is a factor for them to consider. To steal from David and quote Supertramp, if only everyone had listened then, if they'd known just how right I was going to be. Now, moving on, there's been a lot of online discussion recently about what is referred to as outpatient in a bed. For those that are unfamiliar, that's the outpatient who's occupying a bed but does not require hospital care. Maybe it's the patient who needs a guardian appointed. Maybe it's snowing and the patient can't get a ride home. Maybe the patient is abandoned in the ED by the family who went off on vacation. Maybe it's for a day or two. Maybe it's for weeks. Someone even noted they convert inpatients who are stuck in the hospital for weeks or months to outpatients in a bed. And then when they get sick again, they create a new inpatient admission. But whatever the circumstances, the insurer is not going to pay for the days. But here's the key. Call it what you want, but you, you have to be able to talk to your billing and coding staff and determine how they're handling the coding of these patients. These patients are occupying a room, they're getting nursing care, they're being given three meals a day, environmental services is cleaning their room. Those are real costs. Now, when they're an inpatient, there's a daily room charge. When they're receiving observation services, there's an hourly charge. If they're recovering from outpatient surgery, there's a charge for recovery room services. 
But if you have an outpatient in a bed where none of those apply, how does your system track the costs of that care? How does your nursing staffing team know there's a patient that needs to be considered? If you're not getting paid, isn't this considered charity care that can be reported? And if you want to charge the patient to stay, what do you do to bill them? It's complicated and it's happening more often. And I'll have some answers in future segments. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC report is healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Good morning. Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. A case came out April 1st, 2022, but it was no April's full joke. In Gildry versus CMS, Gildry was a pro se medical doctor. He should have not been so keen to jump into district court, especially unrepresented. Gildry sued CMS and asked the court to order CMS to return recouped funds and to stop new recoupment efforts. CMS moved to dismiss the suit because plaintiff hasn't completed the administrative appeals process. Now, recoupment is how the federal government accounts for overpayment of Medicare funds made to medical providers like the plaintiff. Generally, 42 CFR 405.370 dictates how the government recoups its losses by withholding from future Medicaid, Medicare payments. Now, Gildry went through an administrative law judge appellate level appeal, but jumped the gun and filed the, the ALJ appeal in district court instead of filing with the Medicare Appeals Council, which is the fourth level of Medicare provider appeals. Of course, the case was dismissed for failure to exhaust administrative remedies. In another case from February 2022, the district court in the Southern District of Texas upheld the waiver of liability defense in a recoupment matter, which is 42 USC 1395PP. It holds that if a provider did not know and could not reasonably have been expected to know that payment would not be made for such items or services under Medicare, the provider cannot be liable. In the Angelitos Healthcare Inc. versus Becerra case, the government attempted to argue that the home health facility had constructive knowledge of the coverage criteria for home health services and effect on the dates of service at issue, but ultimately failed. The provider also tried to raise issues with the extrapolation and get it thrown out. But this is an important point to remember. Because they did not raise the extrapolation defenses at the lower levels of appeal, the court would not contemplate whether the extrapolation should be thrown out. This goes to show you, bring all your defenses at the first level. Failure to bring up defenses can cause you to waive them, which is what happened here. However, the facility did luck out with the waiver of liability defense. The three big defenses for, provi for providers are the waiver of liability, providers without fault, and the treating physician rule if medical necessity is questioned. Lessons learned from these two cases, one, exhaust your administrative remedies, and two, know your defenses and bring them up at the very beginning. 
Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Nicole. That was healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner at the law firm of practice. And coming up at about nine minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from Polana Houston, David Glazer, Tiffany Ferguson, and William Dombey, who's standing by to report our lead story, Hospice Services in the Crosshairs. It's Monday, it's April the 25th, and you're listening to the live edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Amid the continuing challenges inherent with charging and billing for evaluation and management services, CNM, you can quickly get answers you need from the new edition of the Evaluation and Management Essentials book. Fully updated for 2022, this proven resource covers all the changes to codes, guidelines, and documentation requirements. Plus, you'll find guidance on the new calculations for selecting a level of service based on time or medical decision-making which initially are applicable only to office visits, meaning there's a different set of guidelines for hospitals and other settings. This time-tested resource is ideal for coders, audit and compliance staff, physicians, clinic staff, and others. It's designed to clear up the confusion and instill confidence in confronting many changes. Now available at the MedLearn resource, the all-new Evaluation and Management Essentials book. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. David, I say this every Monday morning. What could be risky today? Well, Chuck, it's the risk that your utilization management team and physician advisors aren't using the two midnight rule. Over the last few months, I've done a number of trainings with hospitals because they're realizing that they are systemically undercoding, classifying patients who should be inpatients as outpatients. The problem is that the utilization review staff seem to believe that they should use InterQual or MCG to determine whether an admission is necessary. While there are times that InterQual or MCG might be appropriate for private pay patients, in the realm of Medicare, there should never, ever, ever, and we could add more evers there, be a situation where your team is using InterQual or MCG for anything. There's only one thing that determines patient status for Medicare the two midnight rule. Now, I know we've talked about this before, but it's worth repeating the exact wording of the two midnight rule, which if you need to find it, is 42 CFR 412.3. So except as provided in paragraphs D2 and D3, and we'll come back to that, an inpatient admission is generally appropriate for payment under Medicare Part A when the admitting physician expects the patient to require hospital care that crosses two midnights. So we started with those except for D2 and D3. Well, those two paragraphs allow a person to be an inpatient when they receive a surgical procedure that's on the inpatient-only list or when the physician expects a short but resource-intensive stay. So those two paragraphs are expanding coverage to places where a stay may be less than two midnights. The bottom line is that if a stay is expected to exceed two midnights, there's inpatient hospital coverage. To be clear, if the physician expects the patient to be in the hospital for two midnights, the patient should always be considered an inpatient if they're a Medicare patient. Nothing else matters. The intensity of service and the severity of illness are as irrelevant as the type of car the patient drives or their favorite flavor of ice cream, which I hope is chocolate peanut butter. Now, Ron and I have talked about this so much, you might well be sick of it. But if the individual conducting your utilization review Uh, doesn't have the same understanding, you're leaving large amounts of money on the table. 
So lately, as I've been doing these trainings with hospital UR teams, a pattern is emerging. Many of the professionals are convinced that Interqual and MCG form some sort of Bible. As a result, they use those tools when reviewing Medicare admissions as sort of a backup to the two midnight rule. Now, when you're working with a private payer, the private payer has the ability to impose those admission criteria upon you. But when you're working with a Medicare patient, those standards are just irrelevant. Now, I realize on this next point, many disagree, but I would aggressively argue that Medicare Advantage plans aren't permitted to impose any criteria that are more restrictive than the two midnight rule. I base this on the fact that Social Security Act Section 1852 requires Medicare Advantage plans to offer all of the benefits of the original Medicare fee-for-service program, and 42 CFR 422.101 requires Medicare Advantage plans to comply with CMS's national coverage determinations and general coverage guidelines included in the original Medicare manuals and instructions unless they're superseded by regulations And the two midnight rule obviously is not. Now, I know CMS has not necessarily agreed with what I'm saying, but I think the regulatory framework here is quite clear. The bottom line is that it's vitally important to make sure your UR team are using the two midnight rule and only the two midnight rule for Medicare patients. And I think the same is true for Medicare Advantage patients. To the extent you have skeptics in your team, schedule a training with a lawyer who will deliver a message like this segment and close it by asking them to maybe listen to some old Neil Young as he sings, You Need to Change Your Mind. Back to you, Chuck. <laughs> Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder in the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the latest news on the social determinants of health is Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Good morning, Tiffany. Hey, what do we need to know today about the social determinants of health? Thanks, Jack. There is so much going on in the world of SDUH in the last two weeks. Quoted from our CMS administrator, who is rocking and rolling with releases, Chiquita Brooks Lashore, advancing, she says, advancing health equity is the core work of the center's for Medicare and Medicaid services. We can't achieve our health system goals until everyone can attain the highest level of health. I am sure I will be taking talking about her more uh, as we cover the additional releases in the coming weeks from CMS. However, this morning we are going to focus on the IPPS release as Ron alluded to, an open period for discussion related to social determinants of health. CMS is specifically exploring how and if modifications needed uh, need to be made to SDOH codes Z55 to Z65 and how they may may be able to improve their ability to recognize severity of illness, complexity of service, and or utilization of resources under the MSDRG system. Specifically, CMS is looking at their connection to CCMCC capture and the impact on hospital resource utilization. CMS is evaluating how improvements in the documentation can lead to more accurate reporting for diagnosis codes, describing the social and economic circumstances of our patients in an effort to support the advancement of health equity, as well as improve data collection nationally, 
regionally, and within hospitals and health systems as an easy means to obtain relevant SVOH data on patients, patient populations. Recommendations are being made to capitalize on the Z codes to look at internal health disparities as well as health equity issues across the care continuum, impacting discharge planning and post-acute transfers. Considering the efforts that have been in place with the expansion of Z codes in October 2021 and the clarification of clinical documentation to include details in the EMR from health professionals, I would hope that coders are pulling in the great initial assessments from case management, which highlight many of the SQH details that impact patient progression and transitions of care from the hospital setting. However, CMS and I am concerned which is why I am sure that this is, this is the open for comment and question period. Because in 2019, CMS reported that Z codes for SDOH were only 1.59% of inpatient claims. And I get it. They are not required. It is likely an extra step to find this information in the medical record when coders are overwhelmed for quick turnaround for production of claims to get out the door with an ethical focus on just getting the diagnoses right or accurate. The ask for something else that is not required, often not documented in the physician notes, and currently does not provide extra reimbursement for the health system falls to the bottom of the list of mounting priorities. I understand the apathy, but something needs to change to encourage greater utilization of these codes. This is why CMS is requesting suggestions. The link for the comment period and further details will be in my post this week. So now is the time to offer your advice and expertise. So today I ask our listeners, are the SDOH Z codes being coded at your health system to the best of your knowledge? Now this is based on our national 2019 national average and the bar is low, 1.59%. Are you doing this greater than national average? same as national average, less than national average, or not sure or unknown. And with that, back to you. Thanks, Tiffany, very much. That was Senior Healthcare Consultant Tiffany Ferguson. Tiffany is the Executive Officer for Phoenix Medical Management, and as Tiffany said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Monday Listener Survey later in this broadcast. Up next, the Monitor Monday Legislative Update. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update is sponsored by Zealous, a market-leading provider-focused electronic healthcare payments technology company. Zealous delivers faster, simpler, more reliable, cost-effective payments backed by award-winning client service to medical and dental providers nationwide. Substituting today for Matthew Albright is Falana Houston. Good morning, Falana. Thank you, Chuck. Good morning. As Matthew reported last week, the Federal Arbitration Portal for the No Surprises Act is now open for business. The portal can be used for providers who want to initiate arbitration related to their reimbursement on the No Surprises Act claims before a third-party entity. While this is good news, providers still have to figure out whether they can be reimbursed and pursue arbitration under either the state or the federal rules. At a recent meeting with state insurance commissioners, a representative from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services shared that work is underway with state departments to determine how the No Surprises Act will intersect with state and federal enforcement procedures. So, when does the state law apply versus the federal law? The rule of thumb is if a state has enacted a balanced billing law that covers the same scenarios 
as the No Surprises Act, then the state law would apply and the provider would seek payment resolution through the state's arbitration process. More importantly, when pursuing state arbitration options, providers will need to adhere to varying state timelines, guidelines, and portals. Providers will also need to understand which claim types are eligible for any particular state's balance billing laws and related arbitration processes. Providers must answer four threshold questions to analyze whether the state law and arbitration process applies versus the federal. First, is there a state law on the books? There are about 15 states with balance billing laws where it could get confusing for a provider to know whether to seek state or federal arbitration. On the other hand, in the states without any balance billing or reimbursement rules at all, which are about 14 states, it will be easier to navigate because the provider can immediately engage the federal No Surprises Act arbitration process. Second, does the state law apply to the patient's insurance or employer benefit plan? Nearly all of the states with balance billing laws only apply to fully insured patients and not to patients with self-insured employer benefits. Third, does the, state does the state law apply to the type of provider you are? Four, does the state law apply to this line item or service? For example, California has a balance billing law, AB 72, which only applies to services rendered from an out-of-network provider at an in-network facility. AB 72 does not cover emergency claims due to well-established case law that covers such scenarios. On its face, it would appear that since there is no specified California state law related to emergency services, that emergency claims will fall under the, no Surpri the federal No Surprises Act. Another inter interesting state is Maine, where state law only provides balanced billing prohibitions and provider arbitration recourse for claims related to emergency services. To address some of this confusion, CMS has released enforcement letters specific to each state that detail which provisions each state will enforce directly and what CMS will enforce. The CMS letters also detail whether state or federal arbitration processes will apply. Chuck, with all the tangled laws, some providers will get this wrong. It will be interesting to see whether providers will have recourse in those instances where there is confusion in the state versus federal laws and arbitration processes. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Falana. That was Falana Houston sitting in today for Matthew Albright. Falana is the Assistant General Counsel at Zellas. Now's the time for the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Once again, here's Tiffany Ferguson. I went ahead and asked, are the SDOH Z codes being coded at your health system to the best of your knowledge? A large percentage of our audience actually said not sure or unknown. The next was the same as national average. Both of these responses are a little concerning. One, it could be maybe you're not in that area. That's okay. The other is alluding to we're probably coding about the same as national average, which is that 1.59%, which means not much at all. So this is the time to really be able to put in your input into CMS and give any advice you have to how to make this meaningful. I have plenty of ideas that I will be submitting. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Tiffany, very much for your survey. Coming up next, the nationwide auditing underway on hospice claims. That story is coming up. This is Monitor Monday. Stand by. 
Health insurers employ a number of measures to deny payments or reduce reimbursement amounts. One common insurer tactic is pushing a patient into observation status, which not only involves a reduced payout versus inpatient status, but it hinders a hospital's ability to transfer the patient. Once they succeed in downgrading a patient's status, insurers turn their attention to medical necessity or lack thereof to deny claims. How do you fight back? During an upcoming exclusive Rack Monitor webcast, Dr. Andrew Markowitz will use sample charts to illustrate common deficiencies and then explain how you can increase the value of information in your documentation fortifying defenses against payer ploys to deny you revenue that's rightfully yours. That webcast is this Wednesday, April 27th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, hospice services are in the crosshairs as a number of auditors are now looking at hospice claims they're piling on. Here now to report our lead story is the president, CEO for the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, Mr. William Dombey. Good morning, Bill. What do we need to know? Good morning, Chuck, and thanks for the opportunity to join you today. Uh, it's aptly titled Hospices in the Crosshairs. This is absolutely the era of oversight of hospice within the Medicare program. Let's start with the question of why. A little bit of background indicates that the ingredients in the hospice community were ripe for this kind of development. There are now over 6,000 hospices operating nationwide, small, large, for-profit, as well as not-for-profit. The benefit has reached the level that generally garners attention in terms of $20 billion of spending on an annual basis with now over 1.7 million users of the services. But within those statistics, we see a wide range of the length of stay of patients in a benefit that is intended to try to focus on individuals in the last six months of life. It is not unusual to find patients who are on service for more than a year, sometimes more than two years of service. We also find that there is an increasing number of what's known as live discharges, meaning patients who begin on the hospice benefit only to be discharged from services based upon an assessment that they are truly not terminally ill. What is the result of that is all the acronyms in the Washington area have come into play from the Office of Inspector General, the OIG, MedPAC, the Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, along with standard bearers of Medicare administration, both UPICs and MACs. They're joined by Congress, as well as a growing number of whistleblower lawsuits under the False Claims Act. A little bit of data you know, indicating how things have accelerated under the microscope, that in 2019, the Office of Inspector General conducted no audits of hospice. In 2020, it exploded to two, but then, no, actually in 2021, it was up to 11 and it continues to grow. So Congress has stepped in on some quality of care measures, in addition to focusing all oversight on lights of stays, as well as eligibility focus. The Medicare Payment Advisory Commission has echoed that, and UPICs and MACs have carried the banner in the field with practical application of those kinds of audits. The two most recent actions demonstrate the path that hospice is on unless there is some quick and deep corrective action. Number one is looking at the fine state of California where hospices have grown by over 400 
in the last year's period of time, and most are in the Los Angeles area, leading to a moratorium of licenses by the state licensing body in the state, which would, of course, prevent Medicare certification of those hospices. But accompanying that moratorium are accusations that those new hospices are bringing with them abuse and even fraud. And then on the heels of that expanded number of audits by the Inspector General's office, which found questions about eligibility, as well as the medical necessity of a level of care, such as inpatient care or continuous service, the Office of Inspector General, the OIG, has announced a nationwide audit. Now, on the surface, this shouldn't scare anybody because it's just 100 claims that'll be audited across the nation. But this is a forerunner for further action, be it out of the OIG or any one of those government entities, including Congress. So where does that leave us with but an opportunity to offer some advice learned from our experiences in the home health realm over two decades ago? In this era of oversight, documentation, 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 it matters as much as you can possibly imagine. And the documentation must be clear, must be comprehensive, must be focused, and the areas of sensitivity are eligibility and level of care. Guidance can come to the hospice in terms of their risk factors as an individual hospice by examining the PEPPER reports, which allow a hospice to determine where does it stand in relation to its competitors, its colleagues and competitors as to whether or not it's anomalous. And a strong recommendation that hospices engage in self-auditing, but auditing with a mindset of extreme prejudice, meaning come in there having doubt about the quality of the documentation, but doubt about the coverage of the claim itself, and that will improve the performance of that hospice overall. So we are here in this era of oversight. It is not going to go away quickly, and the best thing everybody can do is to just make sure that they can defend every claim from the beginning to end. So, Chuck, thanks for the opportunity to bring this line of caution, these warning signs to the hospice community. They need to take action. Thanks, Bill, very much. That was the President's CEO for the National Association for Home Care and Hospice, William Dombey. Thanks again, Bill. Uh, we have a lot of questions that came for uh, David Glazer. We're not going to have time to answer those questions. However, the good news is that Dr. Ron Lurge and David Glazer are going to be answering those questions during the next couple of broadcasts. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. And a special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Paulana Houston, Nicole Emanuel, Tiffany Ferguson, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, and of course our special guest this morning, William Dombey, the President and CEO for the National Association of Home Care and Hospice. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and when you do rate us. And one more thing before we go, hey, a program reminder that our 500th live edition of Monitor Monday is coming your way on May 9th. So you're going to join us then. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Monitor Monday and Rec Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.